Hello, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm Annabelle Collins and I'm joined by Alison Moore and Lawrence Dunhill. This week in HSJ, we've covered the independent inquiry into the actions of maintenance supervisor David Fuller, who abused hundreds of bodies in a hospital mortuary whilst working at Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells Trust. So on this episode, we're talking more about the findings of the inquiry and what trusts must do to prevent this from ever happening again. Also this week, an update on the government's latest pay offer to consultants and why this has made the nursing union so angry. But first, Alison, you attended the final report of the David Fuller inquiry this week. But before we get into that, it's been rumbling on for quite a while now. So could you just recap what happened at Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells, as I briefly mentioned in the intro, and also what prompted this inquiry? Yes, I mean, this really started a very, very long time ago. In 1987, um, David Fuller murdered two women in Tunbridge Wells. Two years later, he went on to start work at the old Kent in Sussex Hospital. And from 2005 onwards, he abused bodies in the hospital mortuary and then at the new hospital in the area, which is situated at Pembury. Um, finally, in 2020, changes in DNA techniques led the police to his door for the two murders. And when they searched his study, they found a, a horrifying um, collection of videos and photographs showing the abuse in the hospitals. So obviously this all ended up in, in court. He eventually pleaded guilty to everything in December 2021 and a an inquiry was launched headed by Sir Jonathan Michael, who used to run the Oxford hospitals, um, to look into the issues that were raised by this case. Um, I imagine this is quite a lengthy document that was published this week. Uh, could you give us some of the key points from it? Yes, I mean, it's it's 300 pages um, and it is actually only the first part of the inquiry. There is a second part um, which will come next year. So this is very much on what happened in Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells, as the trust is called now. It, there was a number of predecessor trusts involved as well. And it concluded that there had been what was described at various points as a lack of curiosity about Mr Fuller. He was an electrical supervisor. He had access to the mortuary, unrestricted access in many ways. He repeatedly came into the mortuary to do little maintenance tasks, to do checks on temperatures and so on, to the extent that in one year he came in 444 times. And no one thought this was unusual. And this, the report concludes, basically gave him the chance to carry out some pretty horrific sexual attacks. Um, and so were there recommendations issued as part? Yes, of there, were, there were a lot of recommendations, um, 17 in total, 16 of which related really very directly to the trust. Um, the trust has accepted them. Obviously, it has made some changes um, since Mr. Fuller's actions were discovered, which is nearly three years ago now. Um, but the, it it was, in many respects, a more critical report uh, about the trust than I think many people had expected. Mm. Um, at the time when his actions were discovered, I think there was a feeling that this was something so on the edge of human behaviour that you almost couldn't plan about for it. it. It wouldn't be included in anyone's um, uh, 
thinking about what you needed to do around security. Um, the report really didn't accept a lot of that, and it produced a lot of recommendations around um, security within a mortuary, the use of CCTV in both the mortuary and also in the post-mortem room, uh, which I think many doctors have quite strong feelings about, and also restricting access to the mortuary um, the governance structure of the trust. It was often a little uncertain who actually had responsibility for the mortuary, for example, um, and around disclosure and barring service criminal records um, checks. Um, that was, in, I think, very important in this case because Mr Fuller had been convicted of a number of fairly minor offences when he was very young, when he was about um, 17 to early 20s and when he started at Kent in Sussex in 89 I don't think there was a, any formal criminal record checks carried out the the process didn't really accept, exist then and since then it's obviously become widespread and used for an awful lot of jobs um, but when he moved to the employment of the facilities management company in 2011 when the, he, he moved to the hospital that cited at Pembury, um, he should have had checks and he did have checks and there was a difference between what he said about his past and what came up on these checks which was never really um, carried through and the trust itself wasn't wasn't informed about that. So one of the recommendations which I think will probably have a far wider effect on the NHS is that trust should ensure that they have reassurance around the criminal record checks carried out on contractors staff as well as their own. Interesting. Um, was this the sense that the checks didn't happen just was a human error or was there kind of a fundamental flaw in the, the process of making well, sure? Well I think information was known by some employees of the facilities management company but didn't work its way through to the trust. Um, now these offences in his uh, earlier life were, were pretty minor you know, burglary type offences um, that probably wouldn't make you decide not to employ someone uh, 30 odd years later but you might well be concerned that there was a difference between what he was telling you and what was coming up in those checks and want to look further into that. And I think that might have raised some questions over his um, character, frankly. Were the trust of, um, aware of them, which they obviously weren't. Um, mm. Quite how they weren't followed up by the company that employed him at that point is, is I think, perhaps still a little unclear. Mm. And it sounds like wider concerns are raised around how um, how much trusts have oversight over bits of their estate and bits of their running that don't have as much attention. I think we described it before as some of the nooks and crannies. I wonder whether um, what 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 other trusts can can learn from this and what you think they should be doing as a result of this inquiry. Yeah. Yes, I, th I think although that hasn't really been addressed in this report in terms of recommendations to the wider NHS, I do think that there's quite an important point here about trust, trust boards in particular, having some level of oversight over all these little areas 
and one of the things that came out, for example, was that members of the trust board were pretty rarely ever seen in the mortuary. Um, there was confusion sometimes about who had the responsibility for it. Some, sometimes people were given responsibility and didn't seem really seem to to, to want to have it. Um, the governance structures leading up to the the, the, the the trust board were pretty unclear. I think it would be fair to say. Um, and there were issues raised back as far as 2008 about um, the mortuary and working conditions there, um, processes and procedures. Um, and in fact, at one point, the Human Tissue Authority's uh, license uh, was handed back for a few years. But very little of this got onto the trust board. And I think there was probably pointers there which board members would have looked at and thought, oh, you know, we, we, we have a problem in this area. Let's have a deep dive into it. And that just didn't seem to happen because I don't think they were really aware that, that this was as severe um, as it as it turned out to be. I don't know if a, a deep dive in 2008 would have re revealed much about Mr Fuller, but it might have led to some improvements in security, for example. Um, one of the really concerning factors in this case, as I said, is that he, he seemed to be able to access the mortuary at any time of the day or night without any supervision or, or without being accompanied by one of the people who actually worked within the, the mortuary. And he obviously built up a relationship and a trust with the people there. They never questioned why it was necessary for him to come in every day. Mm. Mm. And you said before there was some um, debate around the installation of CCTV into mortuaries, which is understandable, but do you think there's going to now be increased pressure for trusts to, to do this? I think so. I mean, the, the, one of the recommendations um, from this report was that CCTV ca cameras should be installed in the mortuary and the post-mortem room and the footage must be reviewed regularly alongside records of who is accessing the mortuary and how often. Um, that's obviously a recommendation directly to the trust, but I think it is very likely that when the second part of this inquiry reports, that will be echoed as a recommendation for NHS organisations um, more generally. And I think if I was a board member in an NHS organisation, I'd, I'd want to, to read this report and I would mm. warn them it's a pretty unpleasant report in parts. Um, it's things none of us really want to think about. Um, and take on board some of these more general recommendations and just to think very, very carefully about my own trust and how much is known by the board about some areas of it. Um, I'm not saying that this is happening in other mortuaries. I doubt, doubt that it is. It seems to be, a, if not unique, it's certainly a very rare occurrence as far as anyone knows. But I think there's probably other parts of trust which don't really get a great deal of scrutiny and I think it's probably is worth making sure certain that you have the uh, processes in in place to ensure that that is happening. Mm. And has there been much of a national response to this um, Alison you know from NHS England have they asked trusts to do anything by kind of a specific a specific time? Well ju ju at the start of Mr Fuller's trial which was back in November um, 2021, they did send out a, a letter, which HSJ reported on at the time, uh, mm. to all trusts asking them to to look at their security in mortuaries. Um, 
there wasn't really very much explanation uh, as to why that was done, but it was obviously related to the um, to the Fuller's trial. Um, however, I think it's not entirely certain exactly what has happened as a result of that and whether other trusts found that maybe they were wanting as well in terms of um, security procedures for the mortuary. And I suppose um, what's next, Alison? Is this kind of a full stop at the end of this story or is there going to be anything else or perhaps involving some of the, the families involved of, of his victims? Well, the, the families are angry, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, I do know one or two of them personally and they this affected over 100 women and girls um over a long period in in west kent where i i used to live mm. and they're angry they don't feel they've fully got some of the answers in some cases and i think they are furious at the trust um and the people who run the trust today that's perhaps not entirely fair because obviously the management has come in fairly recently miles scott who's the chief executive joined in 2018 i think um, however, at least half of the abuse by Fuller uh, was between 2018 and the point at which he was caught. And there probably should have been things the trust had picked up on during those time uh, during that time. Some families are called for heads to roll, but there's not been any indication that that's likely to happen. Uh, one thing some of my colleagues who were there on Tuesday when the report was launched uh, were surprised at was the level of support from the MPs in the area. They put out a, a, a press release which obviously you know, said how horrific these crimes were and so forth. But at the end of it, it included basically a vote clock confidence in the trust and its current management and highlighted the, um, the, the very strong performance of the trust on a wide number of other indicators at the moment I and mean, it's one of the top performers in the country on on four hour weights in A&E for example which is great but it felt very odd to be focusing on that in a press release about such a horrific um, um, series of events as, as this and I think um, some of the families were probably pretty unhappy about that. Mm. And I thought it was interesting um in the, the piece you wrote that I think you wrote it was a, it was a stark reminder that well performing organizations can have serious problems which that, we know that was that actually a direct quote from Sir Jonathan Michael who who chaired okay. the inquiry mm. um yes I mean just because you're 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 good on your cancer targets and your your A&E performance and you're not too bad on people waiting past 18 weeks or whatever doesn't mean that somewhere in your trust there's not a pocket of well, obviously poor performance, um, but also something horrendous going on. Mm. Thanks very much, Alison. I think let's move let's move on to our next topic this week, which is um, as I said, the the pay deal, well, the pay the pay offer to consultants from the government. Um, Lawrence, could you uh, give us a recap as to what what's been offered? Yeah, sure. So the, the main um, bit of it is that the they have got more money after the government saying that the 6% was it and, and there would be no more negotiations about pay. So they've, the, the way the government sort of way out of making that concession was to not put it in as a headline increase. So it's it's not everyone that's got it, but there's a 3.5% um, 
increase it. It's 3.5% of additional funding that's gone into the different uh, pay bands. Um, and so the starting pay for new consultants has gone up. The, the There's a rise in the top pay point and reducing the amount of time it takes to get to the to the top rate of pay. Um, so there's a there's a clear government concession there in the in that more money has gone in. Um, but there are some other aspects to it as well. Um, so there's a BMA concession in that they they've said they will no longer promote their uh, rate card, which has been very controversial, which um, they, which is used for sort of um, locum and overtime shifts um, for for consultants saying to trust pay rates they want for those shifts. Um, so that's that was a BMA concession. Then there was another government concession in that they they've agreed to a joint review of the pay review board process, um, which has has been controversial the way that the the independent pay review body comes comes forward with its proposals. So there'll now be a joint review of that. Um, and then finally, there's another BMA concession um, around supporting professional activities. So SPA time, um, which is you typically for sort of teaching and research um, duties, non-clinical care essentially. Um, and there's a concession that this can now be allocated to support um, the NHS's priorities, including urgent and emergency care and elective recovery. And while the BMA is the Vishal Sharma, the, the consultants committee chair of the BMA, um, has been sort of trying to clarify that this does that it's clear that it does not permit any direct clinical care. That I think there is there is a lot of concern, to, to put it mildly, on social media that um, trust will that will be open to sort of abuse and trust will look to ex exploit that. Um, I think there's also I've seen also a lot of concern about the the way that the the extra 3.5% has been put into the different pay points. So a lot of the more senior consultants are getting a, a, a will get an effective pay rise of about 17%. Um, whereas quite a few of the more junior bandings, their pays staying at the initial 6%. And so I've seen a lot of people saying, well, the the senior people at the BMA have sorted out the sorted themselves out and the and and their senior friends while while leaving us more junior people with the six percent. Um, so we'll see that the, the BMA has not recommended explicit this offer to its members. Uh, but it's clear that they think it is a reasonable deal, um, and so we'll 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 see. But crucially, it's they've said no no more strikes would be called while this is put out to members, and so crucially that means no more strikes in December and January, um, which is what the NHS had been really really worried about. That's interesting. Um, I wonder. That what the reaction has been from um, junior doctor, junior doctors is that there hasn't really been much in terms of their deal with the government. I think they're still in negotiations. I, I wonder if this signals that there could be some good news coming. 
well, I think it's a, it's been very, very quiet, basically, which is good news because it means neither side is sort of briefing stuff out, which means they must be getting on OK and there must be a level of trust there that's been building up. And you, yeah, if, if it feels like now that the consultants have got an offer that they've put out, mm. it feels like it feels likely that the juniors will reach a, a similar sort of place because the government's obviously in a in a different mode now and as and has listened to the has listened to those NHS concerns about winter so mm. hopefully we will we will hear something soon I think the juniors would um, be in a very difficult position if the consultants got a deal and settled and mm. left them still on strike so I would assume that um, that the two deals when the juniors one comes would would run almost in parallel. I think there'd be a lot of bad feeling if the consultants went back to work and left the juniors exposed. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you, 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 they're stronger acting together, aren't they? So very much you, so. Yes, yes. And I think um, what's called SAS doctors are also um, looking at strike actions. So whether there will be some negotiations around their their position um, coming up, I don't, I don't know. But I have seen suggestions that certainly based on what's put on X, formerly Twitter, um, mm. the consultants deal may not get through. Um, mm. They're going to be voting over, I think, five or six weeks over the Christmas period. Um, and there does seem to be quite a lot of consultants saying they're not very impressed by it. There's, there, there definitely does on X, yeah. I'm not, yes. I don't know how, <laughs> how representative that is of the whole membership, but they they, they just need 51% to back it. Um, mm. But yeah, it seems it seems as though it's going to be tight. Mm. I think so, yes. I think that there are obvious winners and losers in this deal, as you, you said, Lawrence. Um, there are some who really won't see much of an improvement in their position at all, and there's some who are actually going to do quite well out of it, I would say. Um, it's yeah. whether people think, well, I'm not getting a great pay rise now, but hey, if I look at this in, in three years' time when I, I'm move up in some way and I've done more service, I will actually get quite a lot more money there then and that's enough to um, carry me through and make me support this deal. Yeah, I think I think that's what the BMA leaders will be saying. Like, yes, the most of the money has gone into the more senior bands, but you will all benefit from that once you once you get there. Yes. Um, but, you know, obviously you can understand the more uh, the more junior consultants being not that happy with that because yeah. that might take them a decade. That might feel a bit too much like jam tomorrow, not jam today. Mm, I wonder why they have focused on the senior bands. Um, are they the, the is that the end that they're most worried about kind of leaving? They want there to be a bigger incentive to stay, or is it is it not really clear at the moment? I think it it, it just feeds into a sort of long some some long standing discrepancies between the between the different pay bands and the length of time it takes mm. to to get to each one but I'm I'm not up on the detail of that. Mm, okay I guess another element of this story is the reaction of the Royal College of Nursing which has been uh, I think we described as furious I think that's um, uh, you know, yes. statement. um some quite strong words coming from Pat Cullen um, why, why are they so cross about this? Well you can, so you can totally understand why um, 
nurses would be angry at this because they have got that they got a five percent pay rise um and it just just to recap quickly on the on the on the history of that that the rcn and unison negotiated a um a deal for a five percent increase and recommended that to their membership the unison members accepted rcn members um voted against um but then they they, they the rcn tried to get another um mandate for strikes but failed um, and so it was just sort of left. They've still officially been in dispute, but without doing anything about it. Um, and so you can, you know, you can understand if you're a nurse and some doctors are getting, some of the senior consultants are getting increases of 17% and you've you've got 5%, you're going to mm. be pretty angry. But then it it's also, it, it grates a little bit when you see the RCN leadership putting out a statement saying they are furious when they recommended the deal of five percent um, back at the start of the year. Um, I, I just dug out a press release that they put out in March um, where they said we've secured commit commitments that will make a positive impact on the nursing profession. We're asking nurses to 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 support what our negotiations have secured and then this week they said nursing staff will be appalled our members are left with the lowest pay rise in the public sector and well that that was the rise that you recommended to them um so yeah it's difficult it seems like pat cullen and the rcn leadership have got themselves into a slightly awkward position um but I suppose what does it mean now it means in the next in the next set of pay rounds the rcn is going to be playing a much a much harder game mm. i remember I, I can imagine that um yeah the government will be quite worried about that but i suppose that won't be until the the spring as i think it's covered until then maybe a different government by the spring <laughs> hmm. potentially um <laughs> and i suppose um yeah, I guess finally, when do we find out the results of this of this um, ballot on the the pay the pay offer? Uh, late January. I think the timing of that of this must be quite a relief, as um, it it means there won't be strikes over the Dece that December January period, which is usually traditionally the most difficult. I think. Um, so I can imagine that might might ease things up a lot. Um, yeah. In terms of emergency care, but also kind of elective targets as well. C cynically, you might, you might even say, well, they maybe they've sort of <laughs> ag agreed to put out this offer that they don't think will will get backed just to get them through this period. But uh, I, I don't mm. know. Mm. All right. Well, thanks very much. I think a good point to end the podcast this week. And just a reminder for listeners, our podcast is available every week on our website and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to get in touch if there's something you'd like to see us cover. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>